All right, for last week's program, we traveled down to Niles, which is currently a part of Fremont, California, to speak with David Keene, the resident historian at the Niles SNA Silent Film Museum. Today will mark his fourth appearance on this program, and as we talk at greater length about his wonderful book, Bronco Billy and the SNA Film Company. There will be a, uh, a festival in Niles uh, this coming weekend, and we're gonna, we'll talk about more about that as well. But first, I just want to say, uh, <laughs> welcome back, David. Good to be here. Thanks. You've done your homework here. This is, this is hundreds of pages telling the story of how this remarkable film company got going, and, uh, and how this man who... Let's face it, when you look at these pictures, Bronco Billy did not look like a movie star by present standards. No, he didn't, but he was a personality. He was a movie star in, in the traditional sense of, of having an aura about him that uh, made people pay attention. And I gather he was quite a charming individual in his private life, able to, uh, to find his way into various business deals and get people to work for him that uh, you know, required some, well, some real charm. Yeah, I think he, he could be. He I think he was somewhat of a loner, but at the same time, he knew how to turn on the charm when he wanted something, and uh, uh, he certainly made that work for him. Well, I guess he was from the Midwest, but traveled uh, east like a lot of people may have done at that time at the end of the uh, 19th century. He found himself in New York, and I guess uh, tried to make it as an actor and sort of stumbled into one of the great epics of uh, film history, The Great Train Robbery. Yeah, he uh, was there right at the right time. He played three roles in The Great Train Robbery, and it uh, changed his direction. He was, he was just a regular actor looking for work, and when he worked in that movie and saw that it was a landmark, that people were actually paying attention to it, he decided a film career was going to be his future. And I guess it was like, what was it, something like eight minutes long? It was very short by today's standards, and yet people just, they, they just lined up around the block for it. That's right. It was the biggest hit of its day. Uh, all the Nickelodeon theaters that were opening up a little bit later, starting in 1905, would premiere that film in their theater. So it, everybody saw it. And I guess Bronco Billy gets conspicuously shot by one of the bad guys, which he was able to parlay into some, uh, some notice later. That's right. And uh, he also plays another actor, uh, character in a dance hall where the cowboy shoot at his feet to make him dance. <laughs> Stereotype of so many westerns, dance partner. Right Rockabilly was the first. <laughs> yes. Now I guess you also mentioned that um, like many actors, he was, I, I gather when he was brought on board to uh, try out for the role, they asked him if he could ride a horse and he said, oh, I was born in the saddle and that was a big lie. That's right, you know, when, just like today, you know, if you, uh, if you're offered a a role for something, you say you can do it. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, he just couldn't follow through. But I guess what, he fell off the horse? <laughs> he fell off the horse on location and never got there. But Edwin Porter, the director, was still sympathetic, you know, the Anderson charm. And uh, so they let, he let him continue as a bandit on foot as well as the other two roles. Well, it's really remarkable, David. He goes from being an actor, he, he keeps playing the fact that I was in the Great Train Robbery, but he, he winds up becoming a partner in a film company just a few years later with a Mr. Spore, and I guess it became Spore was the S and Anderson was the A and what they, they labeled as, as S&A. But, I mean, that's, that's quite a feat. He was. Uh, pretty amazing. Uh, he learned how to direct at Edison, and then 
Vitagraph, another film company, and Seelig Poliscope, which was also based in Chicago, as SNA was. And uh, so he knew what he was doing on the creative side, and and uh, Spore had the money, so it was a great team. But as we as we see and often in these partnerships, Spore is the hard-bitten guy who's looking at the bottom line, and Anderson is the artist who wants to spend the money to make it happen. Yeah, it's it's a pretty typical setup, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, you know, they managed to make it work for quite a while, and uh, SNA as a whole made about 2,000 films, and Anderson was responsible for about 500 of those. And I, and I guess at, at first their big star was Francis X. Bushman. I guess he was like in ben, later in Ben-Hur, quite, quite a big star of the silent era. Yeah, he was, he was the Chicago studio's big star. Anderson did top him with getting Chaplin, even though Spore was really... Uh, upset about uh, Anderson signing the contract for a, a $10,000 signing bonus, which was unheard of in that time. Let's tell that story. Uh, Charlie Chaplin, uh, he's a music hall performer, I guess. He comes over. He's very talented uh, on the live stage. And somebody from the Max Senate operation, Keystone, brings him on board, and he starts making pictures down in Los Angeles for Max Senate. But his contract runs out, and Bronco Billy sees an opportunity. That's right. You know, Chaplin was making $150 a week at Keystone, and Anderson convinces him to sign with SNA for $1,250 a week, plus that $10,000 signing bonus. And uh, Chaplin goes for it. And uh, for the next year, he, he works at SNA, one film at the Chicago studio, five at the Nile studio, and the rest in Los Angeles. It's a transformative time in Chaplin's career finds Edna Proviance in San Francisco and becomes a, his leading lady and uh, Chaplin becomes a huge star, makes the tramp in Niles Canyon and uh, that forever changes him. Now I guess he, from what I can gather in your book, he was doing a little bit of directing down there with Max Sennett, but Sennett kind of was, didn't give him a lot of freedom that maybe he was a little more, had more, was more at liberty to do what he wanted here at SNA. Yeah, Anderson recognized Chaplin as a a uh, creative person like Anderson, you know, a director, a writer, uh, an actor, and was willing to give Chaplin the freedom to do what he wanted. And uh, Chaplin took it and went for it and uh, did some better stuff than he'd ever done at Keystone. I, I was tickled to sort of read how it was, uh, you uncovered how it was. They did a lot of these plots for these simple Western films. Uh, Anderson would, I guess, send someone to the public library. They'd, they'd read a pulp magazine and go, that'll work. That's right. You know, they were turning out, you know, a Bronco Billy film every week, so they needed as much material as they could come up with. And so whatever source material they could find, uh, they were scrambling to get it so that they could keep on making these films. You know, every week they made a Bronco Billy film and a Snakeville comedy, so they were producing two films a week here in Niles. Chicago studio was producing four films a week. Imagine <laughs> every day but Sunday was an SNA release. Anderson was like I guess many artists, he was kind of loose in how he organized things. And from, from the description in your book, he would frequently drive a very fast car from Niles uh, over to San Francisco, which is about you know 30, 37 miles or so, I guess. Uh, and then he would come back and he would show up. He expected everybody to be ready to rock and roll, but yet nobody knew what he wanted. It, what they were going to film that day was kind of in his head. That's right. He uh, made it up as he, as he went <laughs> along. You know, it was uh, kind of the traditional off-the-cuff 
directing. He knew what he wanted. You know, he'd he'd made so many of these films by the time he came to Niles. He 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 knew exactly what he wanted, and and nobody else did. Maybe maybe Jess Robbins, his cameraman, did. They I think they had a great relationship, uh, in, intuitive relationship, and uh, worked well together. But uh, everybody else was just waiting on Anderson's next word to find out what the next scene would be. So he had it all figured out, but probably pretty difficult for the actors and everybody else to figure out how this was going to work. But Anderson was really quick about making these films. He would actually make two or three or four of these films in a week and then spend the rest of the month in San Francisco having a good time. Well, there were a lot of people here that went on to, to greater fame and fortune. Ben Turpin was a name that came up. He was kind of the cross-eyed comedian. And I note that when, when Chaplin got to, to, to making films here in Niles, he was paired up with Ben Turpin, and they made a pretty good pairing, actually, in a couple films. But uh, Charlie decided he wanted to really didn't, didn't want to have a partner. That's right. It, it was maybe, in a way, too good as far, as, far as uh, Chaplin was concerned. <laughs> he wanted to be the solo act. And uh, so... Ben Turpin made other films in Niles apart from Chaplin, and uh, and that kind of paved his career for something greater at, back at Max Sennett's Keystone Company. So actually, Ben Turpin was SNA's very first actor. They started in 1907 in Chicago, and Ben not only acted in the films, but he was the company janitor. Well, I hope as people do go look these films up and on. on YouTube and other places and, and various uh, silent film festivals. They'll check out uh, his work because he, he was pretty good. Uh, another guy that turns up in the Niles saga is, is, is very famous, Wallace Beery, a future Oscar winner. But I guess when he was here in Niles, he wasn't so much acting as he was directing. He'd been an actor at the Chicago SNA studio starting in 1913 and got into a little bit of trouble there and decided to leave town. And, <laughs> uh, so in 1915, he came to Niles and... Uh, Directed a few of the Snakeville comedies after the lead director, Roy Clements, went to Universal in Los Angeles. Beery's SNA comedies were kind of strange, and uh, I think he, it was better that he ended up as an actor <laughs> rather than a director. <laughs> Your book talks about how things sort of came to rather abrupt halt in 1916, I guess fighting over money as usual. I guess exactly what happened is still a little bit mysterious. Well, uh, not so much so. It's Anderson wanted to get into feature films, and he was pretty much stuck in the short film, Bronco Billy films. And, uh, Spore didn't want Anderson to get into the features because they cost so much more money to make, and there were quite a few expenses at the Chicago studio. And when Chaplin's came, contract came up for renewal, and Spore simply wouldn't meet Chaplin's new demands for, for money. Anderson just thought, well, that was the end for him, and so he just simply sold out his share of the company to Spore and left for uh, other things. But I guess the two men, uh, Chaplin and Anderson, uh, they I guess they remained friends. Uh, there's one film that you, uh, I was able to see, which you have here in the museum, where Charlie Chaplin makes an appearance in, in a Bronco Billy Anderson film. He, he's just, he has, provides some comedy relief. And in the movie The Champion, uh, Anderson himself appears you know, as, a, as a witness to the boxing going with Charlie uh, doing his thing out in the ring. So I guess that um, it's kind of a strange thing that Chaplin comes along, he gets a boost, he moves on, and that... It's kind of the end for Bronco Billy. Yeah, it is. You know, one career going up, the other going down. You know, they both made their mark. It's 
uh, Chaplin made a bigger mark, that's for sure, but uh, Anderson certainly did have his time in, in the limelight and had a pretty great career. Unfortunately, because of the problem with not making feature films, pretty much went by the wayside as far as the public was concerned, but yeah. uh, he did make his mark. Well, it's rather famous that uh, after many years of strife in Hollywood, and Charlie Chaplin ran into quite a bit of trouble during the uh, tensions of the Cold War and McCarthyism and things. He got sort of caught up in that, but he did get a special Oscar, I think about 1971 or so, but uh, so did Bronco Billy. The, the, the Motion Picture Academy did see fit to honor him in an award in the late 50s. That's right. 1958, he uh, got his honorary Academy Award for uh, contributing to motion pictures as entertainment. Unfortunately, the award ceremonies went long that year, so he wasn't on broadcast TV, but he did make several public appearances later on, What's My Line in New York and other mm -hmm. things, and uh, had his uh, little revival of fame. And also in 1965, played a little cameo in <laughs> A movie called The Bounty Killer. I guess audiences finally, for the first and last time, got, got to hear Bronco Billy actually speak. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Just a couple of lines, but there he was, still still alive and kicking. Well, he did dabble in films uh, after after the breakup uh, and, and, and the closing and padlocking of the doors here in Niles. Uh, you mentioned at one point he, he, he was a part owner of the Red Sox when they had Babe Ruth as a pitcher, no less. But uh, he just he just it wasn't working out. And I guess he, he lost the rights to Bronco Billy when they split up, so he couldn't make films with that. And he just sort of, he really, truly did retire from motion pictures. Yeah, he, he, he tried to hedge his bets with... Uh, creating a couple of feature films that just couldn't make up for the lost time that he'd uh, been away from the screen for a couple of years. But he did produce a, several short comedies with Stan Laurel that really changed Stan's career and uh, brought him to, to some of the first good films that he made as a comedian on film. Wasn't he involved in the first time that, that Laurel and Hardy were together? Yeah, the, a film called The Lucky Dog was actually a the first film that Anderson produced in that series. David, it's been a great pleasure. I hope we can talk again about in conjunction with the, 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 the Silent Festival in uh, San Francisco, perhaps. But uh, before we go, let's again plug the event you're going to be having in, in Niles this weekend. June 28th to 30th will be the Bronco Billy Silent Film Festival, our 16th annual. And we've got uh, films that were made here in Niles 100 years ago and uh, some great other films, Sherlock Jr., Buster Keaton, Marion Davies and show people, and uh, a lot of other great things to see. David, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, that about does it. You can bet that yours truly is going to be down there in Niles on Sunday, walking around taking a look at some historical film sites. It promises to be a lot of fun. Our thanks to David Keene. And of course, to producer Edward McMillan, whose editing is able to clean up some of the errors that occasionally creep into this program. Like our mispronunciation a few weeks back of Shiite. I'm just kidding. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. We got lots of stuff to talk about this summer.